Welcome to the Nova Podcast. Welcome back to the Nova Podcast. This is episode five of the pre-concert lecture series. This concert, Songs of the Americas. My name is Jeff Counts, and I'm very glad to be with you today. We're talking about music written by composers from and about the New World, the Western Hemisphere, North and South America. We'll start in Peru with the music, again, of Gabriela Lina Frank. We've talked about Gabriela Lina Frank before on this season of Nova. Gabby writes and composes often about her mother's native Peru, and I'm going to read you a quote that I've already read to you once before this season, but it's applicable for this piece as well. Gabby has traveled extensively throughout South America in creative exploration. Her music often reflects not only her own personal experience as a multiracial Latina, but also refracts her studies of Latin American cultures, incorporating poetry, mythology, and native musical styles into a Western classical framework that is uniquely her own. I'm drawn to the juxtaposition of these two words reflect and refract in her bio because I think it gives us a great way into the musical anthropology that makes up so much of her catalog, but also speaks to her ability to break barriers as an educator and as an activist in the music world. She received an award in 2020, the prestigious 25th anniversary Heinz Award, and she gave a meaningful portion of it to basically a school she started. It's the Gabriella Lena Frank Creative Academy of Music. And the award recognized her for, and I quote, breaking gender, disability, and cultural barriers in the classical music industry, and for her work as an activist on behalf of emerging composers of all demographics and aesthetics. Four Folk Songs for Violin, Cello, and Piano was written in 2012, and it provides another opportunity to talk about barriers, barriers of experience, and how information can be refracted through our imaginations and over time. I'll read to you from her program note on that piece. Four Folk Songs loosely draws inspiration from the melodic motifs and rhythms of my mother's homeland, Peru. As an American-born Latina, so much of my understanding of this small yet culturally rich Andean nation has been necessarily fashioned from within my private imagination, from the time I was a young child. Frequent trips to Peru in my adulthood, always done with my mother, leave me with a sense of belonging to something larger than myself as I connect private musings with the actual existing reality. The four folk songs themselves, the movements of this piece, provide opportunities to do exactly that, to connect the private with the actual. The first movement takes us to a church in the highlands, a church that is beautiful and Peruvian, but also undeniably colonial and Spanish. The second movement talks about, and I quote, the universality of children playing in the streets, albeit in this case with Peruvian toys. The third movement is inspired by the ubiquitous guitar vocalist duo that you see in pubs and eating houses around Peru. It's a grounding effect that sort of makes the entire country one thing. And the last movement introduces us to the Chavín de Huantar. It's the oldest archaeological site in Peru. It is a cultural site that was built by the Chavín culture, a now extinct group that lived from 900 to 200 BCE. The artifacts and buildings they left behind displayed an advanced knowledge of metallurgy and a complex understanding of acoustics, but they left no indication of their language, written or otherwise. So it's up to artists, modern artists, like Gabriela Lina Frank, to bring their voice to life for us. 
We move next to a selection of songs by American iconoclast Charles Ives. Ives was born in 1874 in Danbury, Connecticut. His father, George, was a Union bandmaster during the war and decided to become a professional musician once the war was over, and this at a time when such a thing was not at all common in small-town America. But thanks to George's devotion to his craft, Charles was able to grow up in a world of art, surrounded by art. And there's a famous story about George finding Charles seated at the piano and pounding out percussion parts with his fist into the instrument. He realized right away that Charles needed formal training, but no amount of university instruction would ever talk him out of the interesting sound world he discovered by accident with his fists that day. That kind of music making would inform the entirety of his career as a musician. He didn't take to the piano as a personal instrument, though. He was drawn to the organ and, in fact, was a prodigy on that instrument, was one of the finest church musicians in the region. He also loved baseball and later in life made a small fortune selling life insurance. This all while becoming one of the most, like I said before, iconoclastic musical voices in American history. Only in America, cliches just jump to the fore when you think about this kind of life. It almost is impossible to imagine it happening anywhere but here. There's a fabulous biographical essay on charlesives.org written by the inimitable Jan Swafford, in which he recounts what he called the greatest piece of advice Charles's father ever gave him. It was after Charles commenting on hearing the off-key singing of a stonemason, just a plain person enjoying a song. And his father said, look into his face and hear the music of the ages. Don't pay too much attention to the sounds, for if you do, you may miss the music. You won't get a wild, heroic ride to heaven on pretty little sounds. That was good advice from Dad, and I honestly think that wild is the best word to describe Ives' orchestral and chamber music catalog from that moment forward. He was a master at conflation, at combining sonic experiences, having them bump into each other and overpower each other, and creating these incredibly immersive, almost live spatial experiences. Had he lived a little longer, he might have completed his grand universe symphony, which would have been the fullest realization of this concept. It was meant to include at least two orchestras collaborating and competing and to tell the music of creation and beyond. But I think the songs, he wrote 114 of them that accompanied him throughout his composing life, the entirety of it, are like stripped down components of these kinds of huge statements. It's as if each strand of those experiences was separated out and given its own voice for sometimes 30 seconds, sometimes five minutes. Taken as a whole, the collection of songs of Charles Ives are a sort of declaration of musical independence, adored by scholars, by performers, and by listeners alike. Any subset of these 114 little gems, no matter how small, is a joy and a glimpse into the mind of a gentle but limitless genius. Next we move to the music of North American composer Anthony R. Green. I'll read to you from his bio, as I like to do. Quote, Through music, text, and entrepreneurship, Anthony R. Green comments on many issues related to social justice, including immigration, civil rights, the historical links between slavery and current racial injustice in the U.S., the contributions of targeted and or minority groups to humanity, and more. Anthony has said before that much of his music focuses on being black in America, but that he likes to include both the good and the bad. 
And through that lens, 10 or 12 years ago, he began a project, a trilogy of sorts, where he set quote-unquote American texts to music. It started with a commission he got to set the Bill of Rights that he expanded into other documents that were important to the formation of this nation. The next piece took citizenship exam questions and set them to music, and then he ended the trilogy with the piece from this program, the Gettysburg Address. Written in 2010 for the Denver-based Playground Ensemble, Anthony R. Green's Gettysburg Address uses as its melodic material, his melodic DNA, a song with lyrics by Shelf Silverstein written in 1963. And in this song, it talks of a woman who visits a battlefield hoping to see her husband return. And we find out at the end of the poem that she's not visiting, but more revisiting, and that the war has been over for some 40 years. It's a beautiful and resonant connection that makes Gettysburg in this context not just a set of words, but also a place. It's a place, interestingly, that Anthony returned to in 2019. He had a residency there at the Gettysburg National Military Park for the National Parks Arts Foundation. And that month-long stay allowed him to actually see many of the places that the Gettysburg Address and Shel Silverstein's words, maybe not directly, but certainly emotionally, refer to. Anthony talks about his time there and the tour that he got, and he said that he, quote, felt there were ghosts everywhere, and there were witness trees, trees who were alive during the three days of hell that happened there in 1863 and stand there still. There's a great, great interview about his residency on a radio program called The Big Blend. It's a wonderful interview, so I encourage you to Google it and give it a listen, even after you've heard the performance. The best way to describe the music itself is not technical, but rather spiritual. And here I'm going to borrow someone else's words. These words from the musician Eric Chernov in his review just last year of the original recording of this work by the Playground Ensemble. And here's what he says about the experience. Listen here to the foreboding shrieks and cries of the ensemble as Lincoln's famous words are intoned and recontextualized in such a way that they seem to transcend time itself. The words conjure not just the 87 years prior to their original utterance, but serve as a commentary on the antebellum period, the war, and the nearly 160 years since. They are a plea, a prayer, a reflection, and a warning all at once. Jesse Montgomery's Loi Saida, I Love You, is next on the program, and of course it comes as no surprise that I want to read you a quote from her biography. This from Jesse herself, quote, Music is my connection to the world. It guides me to understand my place in relation to others, and challenges me to make clear the things I do not understand. I imagine that music is a meeting place at which all people can converse about their unique differences and common stories. If you keep reading Jessie's biography, you see that she comes from New York artistic royalty. Her father was a musician, her mother was a theater artist and storyteller, and they were very, very involved with the activities in their Lower East Side neighborhood and took Jessie to activist meetings and rallies and all sorts of things where she was able to experience the heartbeat of her neighbors. One of the most important people in that special place was the activist Bimbo Rivas. He is the man who gave the Lower East Side its nickname, the Loisida, and that nickname lives on today. And in fact, he has the Street Avenue C 
It's now called Loisaida Avenue in honor of not only his coinage, but his contribution to Puerto Rican culture and other cultures as well in that area. He was a committed artist and a committed activist. Here's what Jessie herself says about him. Bimbo Rivas was a Puerto Rican-born poet, activist, and community builder who became a hero of the Lower East Side, leading in the affordable housing development projects that shaped our community in the 70s and 80s, and bringing it out of the ashes of neglect and decay that had taken over in the previous decades. Loisida is an ode to the community he loved and fought for most of his adult life. I have set this poem to music in tribute to Bimbo, who fostered my upbringing in immeasurable ways. The poem itself was written in 1974, and it's very evocative of time and place. He talks about how the mountains and the valleys cannot compare to what he refers to as his lady fair. He talks about the parks with their drug-infested pockets and the tough youths that are standing around waiting, just waiting and hoping that one day they will, quote, get well and smile again. It ends with a warning and a challenge where he says, your buildings are burning up. That we got to stop. I particularly am drawn to how often he returns to the simple phrase, I love you, throughout this poem. It's a refrain that is so comforting, so nostalgic, it can make even the most hard-hearted and worldly among us long for the place we call home. Last on the program is the work that gave this concert its name, The Songs of the Americas by Clarice Assad. Like Gabriella Lena Frank, heritage is very important to Clarice Assad. Both of these incredible women have largely North American lives, at least professionally now, but they have never lost their musical accents as South Americans. This work is a departure for Clarice Assad, as she says in her own program note, quote, for the first time as a composer, I explore the music of neighboring Brazilian countries, Brazil being her original homeland. And in this, she includes Uruguay, Paraguay, Bolivia, and Argentina. Quoting again, Songs of the Americas is a collection of song-like movements inspired by chants, dances, and rhythms associated with South American music, a melting pot of cultures consisting of Europeans, immigrants, natives, and people from Africa. This six-movement work embraces fragments of the Milongo dance related to the tune of Uruguay, the Choro from Brazil, music of Paraguay, and a movement dedicated to the Argentinian tango born in its modern version in Buenos Aires in the early 19th century. Also in the suite is an homage to Andean music, chant-like melodies associated with the regions of Peru, Bolivia, and Ecuador, and other peoples who lived approximately in the area of the Inca Empire before the Europeans arrived. End quote. As a capstone experience to this program, Assad's musical tour of South America is perfect, and it was commissioned, in fact, by our own music directors, the Fry Street Quartet. I will give the last word, though, to this work's secondary dedication. Claudia Montero was an award-winning Argentinian composer who passed away in 2021 at the much too young age of 58. Here's what Clarice Assad had to say about her. Montero was an accomplished musician who dedicated her life to creating beautiful pieces of music sparked by Latin American themes. She supported numerous projects to amplify women's voices in music, and her body of works reinforces the importance of female composers' voices in today's world. There's another quote I want to read to you about Montero's music, specifically this from conductor David Brophy, that I think is very fitting, giving her passing, but also the various emotions you will experience in this program. He said this about her music. Apart from the joy it expresses, there is also a sort of melancholy behind the music. Not sadness, 
just an elegiac sense or yearning for older times. The New World is so often memorialized in history books as a place of conquest, of theft, of suffering. It's nice to also remember it for what it has become, a font of incredible artistic and cultural diversity. I'd like to thank you for joining me on this quick glimpse into the Songs of the Americas program. I'll see you on the next Nova podcast. Until then, I'm Jeff Counts. Enjoy the concert. Nova has received generous support from the Utah Legislature and Utah Division of Arts and Museums, the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation, Salt Lake County Zoo Arts and Parks, George S. and Dolores Dory Eccles Foundation, Isotope, Salt Lake City Arts Council, the Cultural Vision Fund, Dominion Energy, Rocky Mountain Power Foundation, the Alice M. Ditson Fund of Columbia University, and the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music. Don't forget to subscribe and share the Nova podcast with your friends. Thanks for listening.